Hello everyone, welcome to the Lisa Burke Show in the run-up to Christmas now. This social tsunami that we're all in, so much going on, so much on our plates and a lot of sickness going around as well. But we're nearly there and hopefully everybody can look forward to um, some rest over the holidays. Some people can't, I know, and we'll talk about that a little bit today. But for those of you who are listening to this show, I really do hope things are going to get better for you over Christmas time into New Year. Now, my guest today, we've got Dr. Shoham Das, who is a consultant, forensic psychiatrist and YouTuber, joining us from London. I've also got, as always, Sasha Kyo, our resident newsreader here at RTL Today. And from Ukraine, I've got uh, two guests who you may already be familiar with here in Luxembourg, Nicolas Zharov and Ina Yeramenko. So welcome to you all. Hello. Thank you. Hello. Hello. Super to have you all here. And Shoham, I'm going to start with you on the show. And just to give our listeners and our watchers, for anybody who can now see us on RTL Play, um, a little bit of a background, a bio for you. So Shoham is, as mentioned, a consultant forensic psychiatrist working at the crossroads of offenders with severe mental illness. And Shoham assesses and rehabilitates mentally disordered offenders in prisons, courts and in special secure psychiatric units such as the very famous Broadmoor Hospital, which is reserved for the most dangerous and violent mentally ill patients. An experienced expert witness who regularly provides evidence on defendants in criminal courts such as the also very famous Old Bailey. And if you're interested in the type of work he does, you can see much more on his fascinating YouTube channel, A Psych for Sore Minds. That's P-S-Y-C-H, A Psych for Sore Minds, which, of course, I will link to in the show notes. And that covers a whole range of topics and people related to crime and mental illness. And it includes also his own professional psychoanalysis of high profile cases. Shoham, thank you so much for joining us from London. You've given me such a such an inflated introduction. I don't know if I can top that. Thank well, you so it's, much, Lisa. it's all your work. And I, I must say, I've been spending quite a number of uh, um, enlightened hours flicking through your YouTube channel. And it really is utterly fascinating. But let's... Oh, thank you. Let, and thank you for the work that you're doing. Um, your work is fascinating, but it's not easy work at all. You're dealing with very disturbed minds. Um, just to give us a flavour of the type of work that you do and the type of people that you interact with and have to assess, give us some examples of the perhaps the most extreme or emotional cases that you deal with. Sure. Um, that's a great question. So one one case that really has stayed with me throughout my career is one of the very first times I gave evidence in a murder trial at the Old Bailey. <clears throat> so there's a young woman, I'm going to call her Yasmin, um, that's not her real name. And it was a very unusual case, very tragic in that she had no history of mental health problems at all. She had no background of violence at all, never even got in trouble at school, never even got a detention. And then over the space of a couple of weeks, she became psychotic. And it kind of came out of nowhere, which is exceptionally rare uh, and is not reflective of the vast majority of my other cases. But she started acting a bit oddly. So she was telling off her family for watching smut on TV. She was dressing oddly, wearing kind of baggy hippieish clothes. She was listening to chanting music. So the family kind of noticed there's something different about her, but they had no idea what was going to happen. And then uh, the actual uh, offence that got her uh, on a murder charge was was just absolutely horrific. So she was babysitting her uh, two-year-old nephew at the time, who was about to turn three, and she had these psychotic beliefs. So she believed genuinely in her head that her baby, that the baby had demons inside of him, and that she had to remove them to save him by suffocating him, smothering him. And she believed that she could reincarnate him um, with with her powers when the when the full moon came up so she ended up killing this child she didn't try and hide it at all because in her head she hadn't done anything wrong when her mother came back from work uh, when the police came around shortly even when she was in prison so that's something that really stands out to me for so many reasons firstly because of the actual shocking nature of, of what happened then there's my assessment which was really quite difficult because she was extremely guarded so when i saw her in prison and then when i had her transferred over to um the psychiatric unit when i was working to assess her 
before her court trial to give evidence in her case. It was really hard to break through the barriers that she put up. She was very passive aggressive. She was very paranoid. And then another element, I suppose, would be actually me having to give evidence at the Old Bailey. So I was convinced that she, you know, she was obviously in a very dangerous space and she needed a lot of treatment and rehabilitation. But in my opinion, she needed a hospital order. So she needed to come to hospital to be rehabilitated rather than kind of fester in prison indefinitely, which is what the Crown Prosecution Service uh, wanted. So, yeah, it was really nerve wracking giving evidence at the Old Bailey and, and just kind of the weight of responsibility if it goes wrong. Because, you know, if, if my evidence isn't selected, isn't chosen, isn't preferred by the judge, then she would have ended up in prison indefinitely. So all of those things were kind of going through my head and I was trying to balance the, the, the clinical issues as well as the medical legal issues in my head. That's such a tragic, tragic case. And uh, there's so many uh, points that you've raised there. The first one is that she didn't show any evidence of this in her life before it and then something just triggered for her. How can that happen to people? What what triggers this in people? Yeah, so I don't want to scare your listeners um, by, uh, you know, suggesting that this is common because it's exceptionally rare out of, I'd say, less than 1% of my patients are like Yasmin that have no kind of um, warnings or no previous mental health issues or previous uh, violence or offending. So that's the first thing I'd say. But to answer your question, usually there are risk factors towards psychosis. So usually there's a family history, you know, first degree relatives that have some sort of mental illness. uh, And usually there is behavioural problems or cognitive defects years before somebody uh, escalates to an actual psychosis. So just very quickly for your viewers, an actual psychosis, I think the term is often misunderstood or misused. So psychosis is usually in the form of hallucinations or delusions. So hallucinations are seeing things or hearing things that don't exist, like hearing voices. And delusions are these untrue, often paranoid ideas or grandiose ideas, like believing that there's demons inside of a baby. Uh, So yeah, so it's usually family history, usually caused by stress, so extreme um, kind of stress and trauma and it can, or drug drug and alcohol use is a huge huge risk factor in fact I go as far as to say that probably more than half of my patients have drug and alcohol issues Yasmin didn't have those things she didn't have drug and alcohol issues uh, so yeah so she was an exceptionally rare case where there were no kind of red flags or warning signs and then the other line that you used which I've written down is in her head she's doing nothing wrong during that period of time which is when she's in this um state, this psychotic state, but she isn't in that psychotic state all of the time. So when she's out of that state, then how does she feel? Does she understand what has happened? That Does she even recognise it as being part of herself? So yeah, that exactly everything you're talking about was a huge part of her eventual rehabilitation. So she was in a secure unit for over three years, about three, three and a half years. And it took us about 18 months to medicate, medicate her to the degree that her mental illness and her delusions receded. So that means for 18 months, we were kind of battling with different doses, different medications, and she still believed her beliefs. So she didn't think she'd done anything wrong for all of that time. And then gradually... Uh, over the space of you know lots of different types of antipsychotic medication she finally uh, the the delusions uh, the delusions disappeared and then she finally realized what she did and as you would expect there was this huge tsunami of depression of guilt of shame of remorse because she you know she killed her her nephew Uh, and it took her a while to just get her head around what had happened and she was i wouldn't say she was suicidal but she was extremely low uh, very very depressed so we had to that was the next part of her therapy and then after we had to deal with her mood and her acceptance we had to also think about reintegrating her with the family so well, that, her brother that is the next step that i'm thinking about it's you're talking about her therapy but this is a family situation where a whole circle of people have been affected by this awful tragedy yeah, absolutely. And I have to say, I think one of the areas that the system that I work in, forensic psychiatry, uh, fails or lacks resources, I should say, is looking after the wider family. So in this particular case, I- I'm talking about of the victim. In this particular case, because the victim and the perpetrator are related, we had access to uh, her brother. And, uh, you know, he's a very, very forgiving, magnanimous person. He attended these sessions on a weekly basis for about six months. I would sit in the room with Yasmin, with her brother, and just try and repair repair this relationship. You know, he himself had to get his head round what Yasmin had done and, and you know, accept the fact that this was, a, this was mental illness. This wasn't, you know, her being, quote unquote, evil. It was beliefs that she genuinely had at the time because of a sudden mental illness. And I know because you've spoken before, um, 
you have uh, another tragic example of a man who was in prison, a self-harm episode. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, there's a few landmark cases that really kind of stand out to me. Yasmin's one of them. And this man is another one as well, because he did he did an absolutely shocking um, level of self-harm. So I'll give you a bit of background. So what had happened was this man had he was in prison and his his index defense wasn't really that serious. He had set a fire in his flat in the context of being drunk. He was an alcoholic and um, wanted to end his life. So he's in prison for a short period of time. When he was in prison, he was bullied relentlessly by the other inmates. I think just because he was a bit older, he was a little bit kind of well-to-do, he was eloquent, he didn't, just didn't really fit into the criminogenic kind of world of prison. So they started spreading rumours about him. They started saying that he was a, a sex offender against children, which was completely untrue. They started saying that his partner was in the fire and had killed a partner, which again was untrue. And because of the stress, this man uh, also became psychotic. So he did have a little bit of a history of mental illness many, many years ago. So he's a bit unlike Yasmin. Uh, plus, he had alcohol issues. So there were some more risk factors. And in his psychotic beliefs, he thought that the other prisoners were intending to eat his eyeballs, kill him, take his eyeballs out and eat them to give them superhuman strength so that they could break out of prison. He, he thought that to be true. So in his head, the only way that he could survive this would be by re removing his own eyeballs. So that's what he did. He was in a seclusion uh, in a segregation unit already because of some disturbed behavior and he basically used a plastic fork to pull out one eyeball that snapped so he used his fingers on the other ones um absolutely shocking a nurse saw this happening so she needed understandably to call a backup team so that they can go in there safely because you know her and her by herself couldn't couldn't safely open the door and, and deal with what happened so by the time they got in it took, it took them about seven or eight minutes to what we call kit up which means put on all their protective sort of riot gear and go in but by the time they went in he'd already done the deed so i actually saw this man about two years after this had all happened because he was suing the prison uh, because he was saying that they didn't pick up on his psychosis and they, they didn't get in there quick enough to to stop himself hurting himself so when i'd seen him he was much much better he was lucid he was calm he you know was obviously blind wearing shades uh, but completely different to the depiction of 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 what of what of what he was like when that happened you're walking through such a fine balance i mean again that's just an awfully tragic story and um it seems in both cases or or at least when you're describing what can create psychosis in a person it's when the mind the body is under immense stress for all sorts of different reasons and or there's a history, a genetic history there as well, and probably a combination of the two. Why does the mind implode like this when it's under stress? That's a great question. I don't think anybody really has a definitive answer for that, Lisa. So, I mean, we know... I say when I say we, I'm talking about psychiatrists, neurologists. We know that, for example, some chemicals, some receptors are um, relevant in terms of psychosis, like dopamine, for example. But I don't think anybody knows why or how it happens. And the other thing that's interesting to me is that it's so um, variable between people. So some people go through immense levels of traumas from, you know, being abused regularly as children. And because of their internal resilience, they have minimal um, psychiatric sequelae. So, you know, they might have a degree of anxiety or depression, for example, whereas other people, they can, as you say, their mind can implode. They can have all sorts of very, very severe mental illnesses. They might be in and out of psychiatric hospitals for most of their adult lives. The people that I see often act out violently, so they're in and out of prisons as well. But I guess I don't have an answer for your question. Nobody can predict or nobody knows why some people react some way and some people react completely differently. Well, I'm sure people in your profession would also have to have a very high level of resilience in order to, um, and also when I'm thinking about it, people working in the prison sector as well and so many other fields associated with this work, the nurses, the doctors surrounding these patients, these inmates, um, your resilience has to be high. Have you seen any of your colleagues affected by this type of work? Um, good question. I, I don't think I've seen colleagues affected by the day to day work of being forensic psychiatrists generally. And I think that's because 
it's quite a long kind of training journey. So there's lots of opportunities to stop and go into another subspecialty once you've started, if, if that makes sense. So so people don't tend to, and it's quite competitive, uh, you know, the number of applicants for the number of consultant places. So people that, that get to that stage want to be there, generally speaking. Having said that, I definitely think that I've seen expert witnesses become, I think, too emotional when they give their evidence. So it can go either way. They can either see somebody who they see as extremely uh, um, vulnerable like Yasmin and I, I, I'm going to choose my words carefully I, I wouldn't in any way say they they lie with the evidence but they can bend or lean the evidence in a certain way to make it a bit more sympathetic to the judge so that this person is likely to get a shorter prison sentence or more likely to be sent to a hospital rather than prison and vice versa the exact opposite so I've definitely seen um, psychiatrists forensic psychiatry experts who are very judgmental when they assess somebody who's done something horrific somebody you know usually men who've killed uh, children or have um, offense sexually offended against women or children and our role is absolutely to support the court in psychiatric issues but we shouldn't be thinking about or talking about or giving an opinion on punishment so i suppose that would be my answer it's not it's not that they affected their kind of fragility or mental health it more that it affects i think it seeps into the evidence that they give yeah, and you're very clear about your role. It's to assist the court. It's not to decide whether they're innocent or guilty. But on the other hand as well, um, we could put that upon the um, the person who's up in the court. Uh, I know that you also have a story of a woman, for instance, who you think may have faked her mental illness or exaggerated her situation to sidestep charges. Yeah, absolutely. So... Um I'll tell you the story. I'd just, I'd just quickly preface this by saying that something I get asked relatively frequently in these kinds of interviews is, you know, how do you spot when somebody's faking a mental illness? And to be honest, it's actually very, very easy because we tend to, or I tend to look at all of the evidence. So I don't just take the word or the presentation of the person in front of me. I look at all of their past papers, their psychiatric notes, case papers. Uh, I look at the evidence for the actual offence itself. So, you know, witness statements, CCTV footage, police interviews. So I'm looking for signs of consistency across all of those things. Um, but yeah, so my story is about a, a lady who in my book I called Darina. That's not actually her real name. And uh, she was actually from the Ukraine, funnily enough. And she was a very, um, very well-educated, very beautiful ex-model who committed fraud or allegedly committed fraud with her cousin and also with an ex-boss of hers that she had an affair with. So she was married, but she had an affair with this man. And they committed multi-million pound carbon credits fraud. And what had happened is that her two co-defendants were tried and they were found guilty and sent to prison. And Darina, who had a lesser role, she was more about the money laundering, so making false accounts, making false documents, rather than actually uh, you know, bringing in um, victims and ripping them off. And unfortunately for her, her, her son actually became quite ill with cancer during her trial. So her trial was stayed, is the legal term. It means it was kind of frozen and delayed for the next year. And then the next year, she basically refused to engage in the crime, in the criminal process at all. So she didn't answer any letters from a solicitor. She ignored their calls. When they tried to speak to her, she burst into these floods of tears and she talked about how upset she was about her son. Her son had recovered, I should say, by the way, but was still, his prognosis was still very poor. So he could have potentially relapsed at, at any point. So she's still in a very precarious situation. And another expert psychiatrist was asked to see her and they said that Darina was unfit to plead so in basic terms that means that she wasn't psychiatrically well enough to go through the court process she wasn't able to understand uh, you know the charges against her she wasn't able to understand whether she could plead guilty or not etc etc then the crown prosecution service they were suspicious and i think rightly so so they instructed me to go and assess her as well and when I assessed her, I immediately smelt, uh, thought that something was a bit off because of her presentation. It seemed just disingenuous to me. So to be specific, she was able to give me in, in lots of detail information about her background, you know, her, her growing up, her family, etc. But she couldn't tell me anything at all about the alleged offences and and she couldn't answer basic questions so as soon as I tried to ask her anything she kept these floods of tears came but I kept pushing the point because that's my job for the court to see whether she's you know capable of, of giving evidence or not and I even asked her some really simple questions like what kind of 
offence are you charged for? Is it, you know, assault? Is it uh, fraud? Is it terrorism? And she couldn't answer that question. And then I asked her about her co-defendants and she couldn't, she said that she couldn't remember who they were, even though one of them she was related to, even though she had an affair with another one. Plus her level of functioning was, was really quite high at the time. You know, she was looking after children. She was going into gym classes on a daily basis. She was, you know, cooking, et cetera, et cetera. So it didn't make sense to me that somebody that who was able to function to that degree was unfit to plead, was not able to make the most basic decisions in a court case. So basically what I said, and I, I really want to sort of emphasize this point, is, is there might be humanitarian reasons. So the court might not want to try her because, you know, she's got these this tragedy in the background. And to be honest, they'd already imprisoned the two main perpetrators. But there's no psychiatric reason why she's unfit to plead. And the, t- the two things have to be distinct. So that's the evidence that I gave in my report. That's what I said when I gave evidence at the Old Bailey. And to my absolute surprise and, and shock, the, um, the judge went with the other expert's opinion. So he overruled my opinion and he declared that Darina was unfit to plead and she didn't have to go through the criminal trial. And I just remember being quite confused at the time because I was 100% confident that she actually was fit to plead. That that must be very, very difficult to, to walk away and to hear that news revealed on the day and to think all of the work that you've done has been for nothing. But I suppose you just have to then hand over to the judge's opinion. Yeah, you have to you have to suck it up, really. And you have to understand that. Oh, I have to understand that my role is only to advise and the judge makes the abs- the ultimate decision. But as you say, it's quite frustrating because it's like, you know, why ask for my opinion if I'm if I've given you a clear answer and you're choosing to ignore it? Yeah. Well, I just want to, on that then, how do you, you've given us a little insight into how you figure out their mental state at the time, because also you've told us that sometimes you're not seeing these people until one, two years later, much later than the actual crime has taken place. So how do you figure out their mental state at the time of the crime? And if you then think that they have been in a state of psychosis or some form of depression or or various other mental situations, um, does it take away their criminal responsibility? In in your opinion, which I know you don't give because that's up to the court to decide. Sure. So um, the first thing I'd say is that the uh, the case with the man removing his eyeballs was a civil case. So he was suing the prison. Uh, So that was there was a long distance between the event and me assessing him because it took him that well to get that long to get well enough to actually you know go through the process of suing the prison. But when I do my criminal expert witness work, I generally see the defendant within, I'd say, a couple of months of the offence occurring. If it's something like a murder trial, which obviously are much longer than it, it might be, you know, six months. Uh, but I just wanted to make that that point. So yeah, so I look at all of the evidence. So let's take Yasmin as an example, the eighteen-year-old girl. When she, I took. Uh, interviewed members of her family who all confirmed separately that she was acting bizarrely in the weeks leading up to it, making these these kind of strange statements. I looked at all the witness statements for neighbours, for the police officers that arrested her, and she was making these very odd statements. So, for example, when she got when she got arrested, she was very confused. She didn't try and hide her behaviour at all. She very got very confused and didn't understand why people were getting agitated. She basically couldn't accept that the um, that her nephew was dead. Then when she went to prison there, I look at the evidence of the all the documentation, the medical notes, um, the nurses and the prison officers that see her. And she was just acting bizarrely. So she wet herself at one point. She was ate, eating tissue paper at one point. But in my view, she wasn't doing this uh, to make a point that she was mentally unwell. So she she was kind of trying to hide her behaviour. So she wasn't trying to telegraph, look at me, I'm crazy. She was doing things and then trying to hide them. Uh, so that's usually a telltale time when somebody is actually psychotic because they they're quite paranoid. They don't want other people to to see their uh, odd behaviour as opposed to somebody who's faking mental illness who really tries to to force it. And then so I piece all of these things together and I fit them into a diagnosis. So there's lots of different severe mental illnesses, as I'm, I'm sure you and your viewers will know, schizophrenia, schizoaffective disorder, bipolar, for example, psychotic depression. So I try and piece together which symptoms fit which diagnosis, and I'll put that in my evidence. Um, and just one other thing I wanted to say is that you mentioned criminal responsibility. So absolutely, that is something I can give an opinion on. So I can't say whether I think somebody is um, innocent or guilty or how much punishment they have, but I can say whether I think their mental state might have affected their criminal responsibility. And it's it's not usually black and white, but in a case like um, Yasmin's, for example, it's fairly clear to me that she had 
overt symptoms and that her symptoms directly affected her behavior. So another way to put that is if she didn't believe that they were demons inside her child, uh, inside the child, then she wouldn't have ended up killing him, I think. So in that kind of case, I'm quite comfortable in saying in my evidence and saying in court that she's not criminally responsible. There's some very deep um, questions here on, on a very deep level of how society should function when you're dealing with a realm of society that can act in this way. Uh, their minds make them act in this way, even though intrinsically that is not who they are. Um, some philosophical questions, I think, I'm sure in there when it comes to the law and how to decide what to do with these people. Yeah, absolutely. And I think maybe some of your listeners might be thinking, and certainly people that I've had conversations with might be thinking, well, you know, <clears throat> Yasmin's case again, she killed a child, so she doesn't deserve to be released. Um, and I think it's easy to vilify people that do horrible things. And that makes sense to me if those people are in control of what they're doing. But for a very small proportion, and it is a small proportion, I, I want to emphasize that, that literally are acting because of mental illness. And I think it is humane as a society to look after those people. You know, it doesn't mean that the charges are dropped and that they're let back on the street at all. It means they go through another system, a system of being in hospital uh, with forensic psychiatrists like myself, a system of rehabilitation rather than punishment. What percentage is it then? You mentioned it's a small percentage of those who uh, can act criminally because of uh, a paranoid delusions, uh, a disorder, personality disorder, etc. So what percentage is it in the criminal system? Sure. So I'd say from my from my clinical experience, so I probably assess something around 100 cases a year uh, where there's been some suspicion of mental illness. I think I would divert probably about 5% of them to hospital. So only about 1 in 20 were so unwell, like Yasmin, that they don't have criminal responsibility in my view. Although I would say that there's a bit of a grey area. So on top, uh, aside from that 5%, there's probably about a 10 to 15% who still need to go to prison, but have serious psychiatric needs. So they need to be you know, looked after antipsychotics, antidepressants, therapy in prison by forensic psychiatrists. Can you give us a little bit of a background as well of the general socioeconomic situation of the most of the people that you deal with? And I'm asking this because there is a societal responsibility to help people who are not given the help they might need through the course of their lives. Triggers, you've mentioned drug use, alcohol, particularly through adolescence, there is a genetic component, but there are other triggers as well, traumas, life stressors. Um, tell us some other things that might affect how people drift into these situations. Sure. Um, great question. So I would say somebody like Yasmin, as I said before, is exceptionally rare. Most of my patients and most of the defendants that I see in during criminal trials come from horrific backgrounds. So there's often some form of trauma, whether it is neglect from their parents, uh, being the victims of physical or sexual or emotional abuse, poverty, homelessness. Um, drug and alcohol use is, is absolutely huge. That's probably the most common factor that I see in my patients. And what's interesting to me is that these are the factors that lead somebody towards a life of crime. And they're also the factors that lead somebody towards a psychiatric illness. So that's why we see them so much. Having said that, there are exceptional... So people who offend regularly almost always have multiple factors that I just mentioned. People like Yasmin who don't offend regularly but do something extreme, completely out of the blue, there's, they're less likely to have these background factors or to have, well, I'll rephrase that, they they're, they're might have one or two factors. They might have just a family history or you know just that they were witness domestic violence because their violence suddenly comes out in a burst as opposed to something that's quite regular. regular. And you use this per term drift and there's actually a psychiatric term called social drift which basically describe somebody with a severe mental illness going down socioeconomic statuses because they struggle to find employment. Um, you know, they can't hold down jobs if they're in and out of hospital or in and out of prison. Uh, they cognitively decline. So even when they're unwell, they absolutely cannot work or function because of their delusions and hallucinations. And even when they're well, they tend to struggle with their functioning compared to before they got their illness. So it's absolutely tragic. So they struggle with work. They become um, financially a lot more insecure. Some of them turn to the criminal underworld. Some of them turn to, to drink or drugs. So they, they tend to drift downwards in terms of 
society. And just one of the things I wanted to say quickly is that one of the types of re or one of the um, limbs of rehabilitation that we focus on in these secure units. So when we send to people to these units rather than prison is absolutely trying to set them up with the best chance of uh, employment afterwards. So we have these specialist occupational therapists as well as, you know, psychiatrists, nurses, um, psychologists, etc., who work with our patients to try and give them a vocation or give them education. You know, some patients come in and they, and they can't even read or write as adults. So we help them, we, or the occupational therapists help them, they educate them, they help them do their GCSEs, A-levels, even go to college. Um, sometimes we train them up to do sort of basic level work so that they're not just thrown back into this situation where they have no ways of making a living. Well, Sean, the work you do is utterly fascinating. Um, I can only imagine it takes its toll, but you are clearly well adjusted to deal with that through all of the other work that you do, writing books, raising your two young children. You work out every day, I know, and you have your YouTube channel, which I'll make sure our listeners go across and, and watch as well. But you're going to stay with us for the show. I know that too. Absolutely. Thank you so much for, uh, for having me on. Thank and, you, uh, Sean. It's a pleasure to, to stay. The Lisa Burke Show. <laughs> Well, now it's my great pleasure to welcome once more Nicholas Jarov and Ina Yeramenko, who are both here from Ukraine ASBL. Thank you for joining us today. Happy to be here, Lisa. Thank you for inviting us. And I love the sweatshirts that you have. They are the Ukrainian colours, of course, and it's all about the message Ukraine is calling. Well, actually, those are not Ukrainian colours. Those are the colours of the State Emergency Services of uh, Luxembourg. Two of them are Ukrainian colours. Uh, well, the this blue, is not uh, yellow. Blue. That's yeah. That's more green and uh, orange. Uh. Oh well, in my eyes, they were but Ukrainian but colors. But your eyes is so it's okay. <laughs> yeah, okay. I think we all know the Ukrainian flag from now on. But uh, more to the point, uh, give us an update, Nicholas, of the situation today. I mean, we're all across it in the news, but we're not we're not digesting the news as much as you both are. I know you're on it every single day. Um. It's hard to talk, actually, because right now there is another missile attack on Ukraine happening while we're talking here. And that's um, what Ukrainians are living basically um, every every now and then. So, of course, um, uh, the, the number of missile attacks reduced recently due to the shortage of uh, missiles. But... Uh, Every week or two weeks, uh, we have a massive rocket a missile attack on Ukraine, on the critical infrastructure. And now during the winter time, obviously, it is um, an act of genocide against Ukrainian people who are obliged to stay without heating, electricity, water, um, and other critical uh, infrastructure uh, that uh, just needs to be uh, for, for there for, for a normal life. Ina, yes. I just want to add that um, today the um, mayor of uh, Kiev, our capital, announced that there is no water in the city. It's the biggest city in Ukraine is the capital. There is no water and the people have to prepare that they will not have water for some period. What can be done about this from outside help? What can be done today so that people don't have to endure a winter without water, without heating, without electricity? We have to protect our sky, protect uh, our people. And since the March 2022, we were asking, shouting to provide for Ukraine anti-missile systems, anti-air um, air defense. And I think that uh, we have to do more um, in this way. So I really hope that the American Patriot systems will be delivered soon in Ukraine and will be able to protect uh, Ukrainian civilians from uh, the missile, Russian missiles. Now, I know you were on our show a number of months ago. In that time, have things developed in the way you envisaged they would? I have no plans. I'm not a military expert and we are living one long day since 24th of February 2022. It's a um, nightmare that doesn't end. And we really hope that uh, the day will come. And we know that uh, this day will be the day of our victory. We don't know when it will happen, but it will happen and we will still um, stand together with all the people who support Ukraine 
until the day of this victory. And we are doing everything to approach this day. Well, I know you everything are. Everything we, we can. You are, because... And we cannot. <laughs> turning it back to Luxembourg, I know that with the, the Ukrainians, refugees living in Luxembourg, you've done amazing things. You've opened a Saturday school. Uh, yes, um, it's a wow, um, one of our latest project. Um, I first of all, I want to th- say that um, project for children our priority. Uh, more than um, 1,500 children came here from Ukraine, and of course, it's always priority to make children happy and to give them everything they need. But in this situation, it's especially um, important to give everything to these children. They came from Ukraine, they came from the war, they separated with their fathers, uh, grandfathers, uh, so we try to do maximum to help them, uh, to adapt them, to help them to adapt to new life, uh, temporary life, we we hope, but anyway. So we opened the strategy school and it's uh, going very well. We have a good feedback from parents, uh, from their mothers and children, and we are very proud. And it increases the community spirit there. Of course. I, I've got a question, if that's okay, to um, to both Inna and Nicholas. I, I imagine, obviously, for the refugees in Luxembourg, it, it's, it's such an acute situation, there's so much to deal with. Is there any um, resources or thoughts towards their mental health being supported in any way? Or is it too soon? Actually, um, we do have a psychological assistance for for the refugees because we knew from the day zero that uh, when the refugees came that they need this assistance. That's why we are giving online and offline sessions with uh, psychotherapists and uh, psychologists for Ukrainian refugees. Uh, Fortunately, um, there are not as many um, initiatives, government initiatives, uh, due, of course, to the uh, language barrier. Uh, but we are trying to do everything we can to support those people. And in Ukraine, we have also a hotline which is reachable from uh, um, other countries if people need support from uh, a state emergency service and their psychologists. Well, Sean, I was going to turn to you, actually, because... Um I almost view the refugees as the lucky ones if they can get out of the situation. At least they have electricity, running water in the countries they're going to. At least they have a place they can feel safe for the time being. But what about the trauma being inflicted on those who remain in Ukraine and their state of mind? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a vital question. Um, First of all, I just wanted to say I was really impressed to hear that there are psychological services for the refugees in Luxembourg because um, services are notoriously slow to set up and get running, at least in the UK. So it's, it's really impressive to me that's been done so quickly. Um, so yeah, Lisa, to answer your question, I think there's, t- when we talk about the trauma of, of you know, war, of poverty, of being bombed, of having your resources taken away, of living with, without, uh, with, the threat of your electricity and your water being being um, shut off obviously it affects the average person's mental health in terms of how it does this i suppose it depends on the individual there's a massive increase in the risk of anxiety and depression people who've suffered previous kinds of trauma whether it be violence whether it's been any form of combat or war they're likely to be re-triggered so often when people see horrific kind of violence or scenes whether it's bomb going off, people dying in front of them, they developed post-traumatic stress disorder. So that is a phrase that I think, a bit like I said before about psychosis, I think is often misinterpreted or misused, uh, misappropriated. But it is very much relevant in this kind of level of trauma. So just for your viewers, that is where somebody relives the trauma over and over again. So it's not just intrusive memories, it's actually being psychologically transported back to seeing the sights, the smells, the sounds, the panic. So that's one of the core symptoms hypervigilance is another one so it's when somebody's always on edge you know uh, it's understandable why people would be on edge in ukraine if there's all this chaos going on around them but even outside even in calming environments somebody with ptsd ptsd still feels this background panic almost constantly and also um, avoidance so they they try their best to avoid situations that will um, remind them of the original trauma so those kind of things ptsd anxiety depression and personality kind of issues so um, mistrust fear paranoia are all i think absolutely understandable and natural reactions to this level of trauma is there any benefit in 
the society that we're thinking about in Ukraine, they're all suffering together. So the community of Ukrainians, they're suffering together. So at least they can share their pain as one unit. Yeah, I think in theory, there's certainly things like, for example, group therapy, where people do kind of share their experiences. And I suppose it, I meant it more, helps. Sorry to interrupt you, Sean. I meant sure. more um, in their minds. They know that they're not alone in their suffering. They know that as a country, they're suffering. And does that help diminish the potential risks to to their mental health? Um, I would say that it probably doesn't on an acute basis. So at, at when they're when they feel that the threat's over, when war's over, when they're in a space where they can learn to heal, then absolutely that might help knowing that there's other people who have had similar experiences. But when it's actually happening, I think the average person, obviously it's different for different people, but your typical reaction would be, um, you know, trying to get your head around and cope emotionally with all this all this drama and trauma going on around you. So I suppose my answer would be it probably doesn't really help now, but it might help later uh, during the recovery phase. I wanted to add to the previous topic also, we, we shouldn't forget the people who live on the occupied territories. So the atrocities they see, torture of Russian soldiers, so um, it's it's difficult for them. We have thousands of people who are in captivity. One of them is today in Luxembourg, Yulia Payevska, one uh, among other persons who received the Sakharov Prize today. She lived the captivity, the Russian captivity. There is nothing human in it. There are no Geneva Conventions that are being respected, tortures every day, violence, sexual violence. Um, we know that official UN report says that um, the age of sexual violence victims starts from four years old and ends at 82. Those people have lived nightmare, nightmare and obviously psychological assistance, immediate one is, is a priority for them. But it's hard to do everything at one time when we live in a war. We cannot do everything. So the common state, the, the psychological state is difficult, but we are holding on. And I must say that we should consider that um, PTSD is something that uh, should be uh, treated and helped with um, in the next months, years, because it will make a lot of problems after the war. Mm -hmm. Well, war war doesn't end when the, the war itself ends, and hopefully that will be soon, but we don't know. But you are doing a lot here in Luxembourg, and you have this phenomenally successful fundraising campaign, Ukraine is Calling, So tell us about the, the convoys, the rescue vehicles that you're sending. So it's um, a campaign, a global fundraising campaign called Ukraine is Calling. And the goal of this campaign to send to Ukraine 112 rescue vehicles. 112 because, you know, it's a, it's a number of... Uh, Call number of emergency service in international, not everywhere, <laughs> not yes, in the UK, in but <laughs> yeah, in many countries. Uh, many countries um, so it's like something symbolic, and of course, so it's very simple. We collect money for ambulances and fire trucks, and we'll send them to Ukraine because they're huge, huge demand, and uh, we want to help those people who risk every day their lives in every, even in the normal life. The, um, the risk every day, but in the time of war, you can imagine how difficult and dangerous their work are, and our goal to help them, and to help them to save more lives. And obviously, why the vehicles? So we have official numbers uh, about more than 2,500 those special vehicles that were destroyed, yes. stolen uh, by by Russians, Damaged. and we have to replace them, obviously, because. People cannot perform their jobs. They cannot go to the regions uh, when they have no transportation means. Mm -hmm. That's why we, we decided to, to help them with uh, at least this small part. It's absolutely. And I know that you're sending your first convoy of rescue vehicles on the 21st of December, including eight ambulances which have been donated by yes. Luxembourg's Cegedis. 
yes. Uh, so we launched this campaign here in Luxembourg. It's the first uh, step. And we're very proud of this. We wanted to show that even small country can make a huge impact on the situation. And very, we are very appreciate all the Luxembourgish people to support us. And by the way, I also want to use this opportunity to say thank you all the media who supported us here, and especially, of course, RTL, and especially Mr. Steve Schmidt, uh, who trusted uh, and, um, in this idea a lot. And so thank you very much for the support. I will definitely. That's, that's why we have so um, good uh, first result already. I will pass this on to Steve Schmidt and I'm <laughs> sure he'll be very, very happy to hear about it. So tell us briefly about your new project for Ukraine, Generators of Life. Yeah, as we talked about before, uh, the missiles attacks are hitting the critical infrastructure. So people basically don't have access to electricity and heating. And our goal is to help uh, hospitals um, and other, not critical, but let's say um, places that provide um, help for other people to help them get the electricity. That's why um, we call them generators of life, because the first, um, the main places where they will go are hospitals and also orphanages where we have um, children. So those are I, I think the idea is crystal clear and we already had some support for the generators and uh, some the three first big generators uh, are already uh, ordered and we hope that the, um, before the Orthodox Christmas uh, they will be delivered in Ukraine. Well, Nicholas and Ina, thank you so much for your constant, unending work that you do for all Ukrainians here in Luxembourg and beyond. It's not a work for us, it's our life yeah. Really, we have no choice. We just have to do this. Well, you've created great solidarity in your community here in Luxembourg and hopefully all of our listeners will continue to help and donate to your cause. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. The Lisa Burke Show. And now turning to Sasha. Gosh, it's been such a sombre 45 minutes. I, well, I was thinking it's very it's very hard to follow. I mean, the only thing I can do as, as a newsreader is is to stop any Ukraine fatigue in the news. And just, um, you know, we really try to keep it in the news every day. There's so much news. And my main call to, to, to listeners would be don't switch off. You know, don't, don't think, oh, not depressing news again. When I hear someone saying you know, that's, that's just too depressing. I can't read it. It makes me furious. Yeah. So like, you only have to read it. You don't have to live it. Yeah, yeah. And I've seen many news organisations, they have it on the news every single day and it's relentless and it's there. So it's good. They keep tapping the drum, so to speak, to I keep think it consciously yeah. there in our minds. Now, turning to other news, right. we've had yet another phenomenally busy news week. And um, I live next door to somebody who works at the European Parliament and he, he looked rather jaded when he came home yesterday. <laughs> And yes, yet again, I wish there was more news about the Sakharov Prize and the people of Ukraine uh, winning the prize, which is yeah. is quite something. But of course, the main news out coming out of the European Parliament this week is a corruption scandal, and and what a scandal! Really, um, you know, uh, I make no mistake. This is the the biggest scandal in European institutions, I think, to yeah. date. The level of money involved here is just enormous. Yes, yes. And also the, the access, um, you know, so, so just, just for anybody who ha hasn't heard this news. Yeah, please, yes, inform us. Yes, so there's been a very big corruption scandal um, at the European Parliament. Uh, up to a, a million euros has been found in various, well, hotel rooms, <laughs> flats in Brussels, you name it. And and as yet, unnamed uh, country from the Gulf, everyone believes it to be Qatar, but, it, well. it, you know, it hasn't been proven that they have been bribing certain members of the European Parliament. And one Greek MEP in particular, uh, you know, everyone has focused on her. So um, this this lady, Eva Kaili, is is also still saying she's innocent, but there are four MEPs who are... I thought her partner has recently been in the news confessing. Yes, her partner has c confessed. I mean, she's been saying, well, maybe you should look look to, towards him. But then the, the, the suitcase of money was found in her father's uh, hotel room. I, I mean, I'm not saying anything, you know, nothing has been proven, but she, she is in custody, um, as are three others. Um, 
I, you know, it's really rocked the EU Parliament. Uh, they're calling, I mean, uh, uh, Ursula von der Leyen, the European uh, Commission president, called it an attack on European democracy. And I don't think it's an attack on European democracy, but it does show how easy it is to to influence democracy and and find people who are corruptible. Yeah, I, I, it's tragic. I mean, this is this is what we don't want in our politicians, and what a brutal example of of people who can be corrupted. And it's it's not very good for the EU. It's it's really bad. I mean, it's not as if e, you know they they are badly paid. Uh, you know, this is not, we're not talking corruption in countries where the police are so you know so underpaid that you, that you maybe can understand it. In fact, even um, you know in, in cases of. I, I, and one of my other stories was um, drug smuggling that um, Rotterdam and Antwerp have become such centres f- uh, for drug smuggling gangs. The phrase is drowning in cocaine. Drowning in cocaine. But of course, the customs officials there are being bribed by Colombian drug cartels. But they're very, apparently, very poorly paid. And they're given €100,000 just to look the other way, not to ask for an investigation of a particular cargo. To me, that's a, 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 corruption is bad on all levels, but you can imagine, a, you know, a small cog. But MEPs, really, they lead a very privileged life as it is. So I, I think it makes you even angrier. Yeah, it's not just the privilege. Of course, uh, this story in the Netherlands is a huge story. Another huge story. Yes. <laughs> There's a lot going on in Europe this week. But MEPs have a social responsibility yes, to act a certain way. One expects, at least, anyway, that's why they're voted into that position. <laughs> Yes. It's, it's a position of trust. It's a position of trust. And, and I think it will take quite a long time for that tr- uh, trust to come back. I mean, I know that the parliament in general, it's not the majority of people, obviously, who work there. But it tarnishes them all. But it tarnishes them all. Exactly. So they are trying to distance themselves um, from away from these four, um, obviously. But I was quite shocked to read that um, only now are they restricting access to Qatari um, officials to the actual parliament buildings, um, both in Brussels and Strasbourg. And you think, oh, OK, so you had full access to the <laughs> parliament buildings. You or I wouldn't have access. No, no, we wouldn't be able to walk in unless we had lots of uh, luggage behind us full of uh, dollars or something like that, which <laughs> I certainly don't have. <laughs> yeah. Now, um, well, I suppose we have to mention Prince Harry, Netflix... Well, I don't know. Have you watched it? No, I've, watched re- I've, read, I've read the snippets and the, the various articles about it. I haven't watched it, no. No, I haven't. I mean, it's, it's six episodes long. It's six hours of your life. I don't, I don't have time to sit down and watch no, anything. No, but I have watched little <laughs> clips and apparently the last two episodes are the ones with all the, the, the major allegations against the royal family. But uh, I, if you look at the British papers, this, this is rocking the royal family, isn't it? Big time. Um, I like the fact that the Kensington household are, are remaining absolutely quiet. Sean, tell us about the British press. What's the view from <laughs> from London? So, I mean, it's it's such a a, a huge deal over here. Um, it's kind of saturating the headlines. Um, I think it's been a bit mixed. I think the tabloids, as you would expect, have been quite acerbic and hostile towards um, Harry and Meghan, saying that they're you know overprivileged, that they're complaining, picking apart some of their some of the lines that they've said, I think sometimes out of context to make them look worse. Um, I have to say, I'm not generally interested in this kind of area, but I have watched some of the documentary, watched some of it last night, and I am, it has kind of influenced me, actually. It's made me think differently about the couple. I think I just kind of maybe slightly naively believed most of what I read, but I really do think that there is a bit of a campaign of hatred um, against them. And there's one other thing I want to say really quickly, a bit of a tip for you. If you do want to watch something like that on Netflix, which is what it's on, you can put it on 1.5 speed uh, so you can watch the documentary <laughs> quicker than, than you need to. That's what I do. <laughs> now, there is a man with a, a clever brain talking. I do do that with my audiobooks, actually, but I haven't thought about it for Netflix. In fact, I, I, it's, a by the by story here, but I've recently moved house, so it's taken me a while to actually even set up my television to work and for the Wi-Fi to work and everything else. And I put it on for the first time a few days ago, and I was so exhausted I actually fell asleep in front of it. <laughs> so you're missing the bombshells from from the documentary. I'm only seeing the snippets that come out on social media, yes. which, as Shom has just said, they are very, very um, biased, and it doesn't tell the full picture at all. Now but it's another picture. It it, it, it is yeah. another picture. I suppose we also have to mention this thing that's called football. 
<laughs> I know you, you hate talking about the football. I don't. I don't no. mind. I've got lots of French friends, yes. of course. So I suppose I have to be rooting for France now that we're here. Well, I actually, uh, this is nothing to do with the World Cup particularly, but I was in Paris last weekend and uh, totally unawares, we sort of went out on Saturday night. Oh, it's really difficult to find a table here. You know, every bar was full. <laughs> then, to my amazement, uh, if you're not a big nationalist, it comes as an amazement, is that suddenly I heard the the French anthem being sung in the streets, in every bar. And we were like, what idiots. Of course, it's uh, France playing England tonight. So we were like, is it all right to go out and speak really, really quietly? Um, but it was a great atmosphere. Oh, how And this amazing. weekend, obviously, we've got the, yeah. the, the, the big final on, on Sunday, France-Argentina. But uh, I think a lot of people are going to watch the... Uh, the match for the third place um, on Saturday, um, Croatia and uh, hang on, Croatia, Morocco, because a lot of people were rooting for Morocco. Yeah, weren't they? they did so well. They have done so well. Uh, yeah, we always root for the underdogs. So that's a that's a very yes. British. Uh, <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> position. Well, now I did see this piece of news, and I thought of you. I saw that Boris Becker will be deported. He'll be closer to you, Sajan. Oh, I have got a soft spot <laughs> well, you've for met Boris him. Becker. Um, well, he's been deported, actually. He he was sent back to Germany yesterday, having only served eight months eight of his months prison sentence that, in yeah. the UK. Um, so, yes, home in time for Christmas and home in time for an all-exclusive interview. So I did read, rather much as I am a fan, um, that he was flown by private jet... <laughs> Um, to Munich to do a, an all-exclusive interview, which seems, I, I, I'm, I'm not, again, n- not judging, but it seems a little bit unreasonable, having only served eight months out of a two-and-a-half-year uh, sentence mm. for hiding a little bit of money. I wonder where the money's gone, actually. Well, I <laughs> Maybe he's gone to the European Parliament. (laughs) Who knows? (laughs) Yeah, well, I need to end on a positive. I always like to end on a positive note. So amongst all of this, we have some summer concerts that have been uh, mentioned that are happening next uh, year, of course, uh, 2023 summer here in Luxembourg. So who can we look forward to inviting here in Luxembourg? Yes, it was a really big announcement by the concert goers that uh, not only will Robbie Williams come, but the Arctic Monkeys and... Lizzo, um, big open air concert here on the Kirschberg, which takes 17,000 people. And of course it won't rain. And it, yes, of course it won't <laughs> rain. So it's a big festival. And um, But what, what interested me was that part of the press conference also, that they, they were talking about recovery from after, after the COVID, after the COVID pandemic. Um, and obviously for artists and musicians, as well as um, venues, it, it's been absolutely appalling. Um, and But they are in profit even after a year. It's extraordinary. Um, which is absolutely <laughs> extraordinary, seeing as most 90% of their money comes from ticket sales. And you know how we've been saying for weeks now, oh my God, there's so much going on. There are so many concerts every week and they've just been pumping them out. And people are obviously desperate to to go out again and celebrate and listen to music. So that's a really positive note. Which is a good thing. And then your favourite protest of the week. <laughs> we know we know what's happening in the UK. And of course, I have been following the, the news about the, the nurses' strikes, etc., which is very important. But we won't get into that. We're going to talk about a different uh, protest or non-protest, should I say? Well, yes. So there are strikes, as you say, there's strikes everywhere, especially when you read the British papers or in France, uh, railway strikes, etc. But the Belgian police are also underpaid and they've come up with a unique way to protest, which is they have declared um, a a month from, I think, 15th of December, so from yesterday until uh, the 15th of January, they will not issue any traffic or parking fines. That's amazing. Um, That's just brilliant. (laughs) So everybody go to Belgium. Well, I imagine it's going to have a massive effect on the government. I think they would move very quickly if they're not getting any income from um, speeding tickets or parking fines. I know it's such a huge source of income. Yeah. And actually, Sean, I know the cost of parking fines and various other fines in London. And one of the things when I moved here to Luxembourg was um, the parking fines are usually about 24 euros. And I thought, oh, that's OK. That's like a day's parking in London somewhere. It's like, <laughs> I might as well just park here anyway, because it's <laughs> no, not that I park illegally. 
I never parked. Yeah, so. <laughs> well, the other thing they're not going to bother doing is doing any breathalyzer tests. Oh, that's, which, that's which, not great. That is a bit more dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's not great. But, but it's quite an efficient protest, I think. I think it's brilliant. I can't think of an equivalent that the nurses could do in the UK, however. I don't know no. what they could do that's an equivalent of uh, something like that. Although, I must say, one of my bugbears is that in hospitals here in Luxembourg and in the UK, the parking is expensive and I think that's wrong. I don't think parking should be expensive. I actually think in a way it should be free for those who need to use the hospitals. No, absolutely. In emergency yes, services. No, it's, it's true. Anyway, on that note, uh, Shom, have you got a Christmas message for our listeners here in Luxembourg and abroad? Um, I can't think of anything else to say apart from Merry Christmas. That It's been a difficult year. It's been a difficult couple of years, difficult decade. So I think everyone needs to take a bit of time off, spend some time with your family, watch TV, eat loads of chocolates, drink a little bit, um, park illegally if you live in Belgium and enjoy yourselves. <laughs> Thank you, Sean. Thank you for joining us today here in Luxembourg. And of course, to you, Inna, and to Nicholas, uh, I imagine your message would be to invite people to donate. That would be very great uh, to, uh, to to donate, of course. It's a, an end of the year and um, Luxembourgish families can enjoy these moments in uh, warmth. Uh, and together with their families. Unfortunately, um, not everyone has this uh, unique chance and uh, we have to assure that at least we can provide some warmth to them and we would be happy. And we thank to everyone who has already donated the last 10 months for us and helped us. Uh, we wish them Merry Christmas and we hope that uh, the next Christmas we will celebrate in peace. Thank you so much. And Sasha, from Sasha and myself, we wish you all a wonderful Christmas. Yes, happy Christmas, everyone. Thank happy you. Christmas, thank you. Happy Christmas, everybody. Thank you.